chaos erupted as officers responded to calls about a man with a gun at Austin East Magnet School in Knoxville. Police say as officers approached the suspect, shots were fired and one officer was hit. At least one person was killed, another taken into custody. It's a scene that has become all too familiar. A student opens fire at police at a Tennessee high school. The student is shot dead, an officer seriously wounded. It was the latest in a spate of shootings since the slaughters last month in Atlanta. Eight massage parlor workers gunned down and Boulder, where 10 were killed in a supermarket. Nobody has been working harder to pass gun control legislation to try to curb this epidemic than Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. We'll talk to him about his efforts to try to craft a gun bill that could get 10 Republican votes, the number needed to crack a filibuster. And we'll also question him about President Biden's decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, as well as the prospects for a revived Iranian nuclear deal on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Mike Lizagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clyde, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So on this most depressing of subjects, and I'm referring to the uh, shootings we have across the country, they seem to multiply, one begets another. I have to say, Chris Murphy may be uh, the one optimist in all of Washington. He continues to believe he may be able to get 10 Republicans to go along with gun control legislation. Uh, that's what's necessary in order to pass, because with the filibuster, you need 60 votes. We'll see, but um, I, I wonder if the prospects are as uh, as possible as Murphy seems to think it is. Well, Victoria, you've actually uh, you actually know Senator Murphy quite well and have worked with him, even worked on a book that he wrote about uh, guns and violence in America. So, is his optimism rooted in uh, reality? Or is he being Pollyannish about this? Well, so one thing that might be driving his optimism, unclear, is something else going on this week in Texas, which is the National Rifle Association is in the middle of a bankruptcy trial to determine whether or not they can declare bankruptcy. Uh, they're doing it in the face of massively declining revenues, uh, a number of internal investigations and an effort by the Attorney General of New York to de-establish the organization. So the fiercest opposition that Senator Murphy has and most people who are supporting gun control efforts have faced over the last 20 or 30 years is on its heels right now. That might be a source of the optimism. But also, you know, given the way the Senate works and the filibuster works, you have to be an optimist to get up every morning and go there to work. Yeah. I mean, he he, he thinks that the politics have shifted uh, on, on guns um, and maybe they have a little bit um, over the years with all of these horrific massacres. You know, the other reason for, I wouldn't say optimism, but, you know, a slight bit of hope, I guess, is that Democrats um, control the Senate barely, which all that really means is that uh, Chuck Schumer will be able to bring the legislation to the floor and be able to force 
a vote. So Republicans will have to vote against these very measured, kind of modest uh, proposals uh, extending um, uh, background checks. Well, they've done it before, so I, I'm not quite sure. And that is, Republicans have opposed, you know, modest, common sense, measured uh, legislation. I mean, most famously, a few years ago, when you had Pat Toomey, the Republican from Pennsylvania, uh, teaming up with Manchin on a uh, background checks bill, and uh, they got six of the Republican votes. They got pretty, but that's pretty close. Needed. It's well, I mean, that, it's, it's not four close away. Enough, but it's, you it's, need it's, four it's, more, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the the gun control advocates have essentially, over the years, narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed even further everything that they're seeking. You know, a, a few years ago, you might have seen a piece of legislation that had five or six different elements to it that sought to maybe ban assault weapons, that maybe sought to limit the size of clips that you could have, that might have uh, done something about, uh, you know kind of making mental health records or domestic violence records bar you from being able to buy a gun. But now it's all down to one issue and one issue only, and that's background checks. Because it's the only thing they can get. And I think the theory of the case is, at this point, if you can get background checks passed, then you may be able to kind of demystify the issue a little bit that Republicans will realize that you know the NRA is not as powerful as it once was, that they will survive, and then you can build on that, maybe get some traction, but we'll yeah. see. And meanwhile, uh, you know, President Biden is trying to do everything he can through executive order, which is not the most in the world, but there are executive an executive order that he issued last month that would increase funding for anti-gun violence. That would you know well, it kind would of- ban these uh, not ban it would it would subject these so-called ghost guns to background checks um, and also um, make sure that they have serial uh, numbers so that they can be traced. Uh, I didn't know much about these ghost guns, but apparently, you know, you can just send away for them in the in the mail, put them together in in a half an hour or something, and you've got basically the equivalent of a Glock nine or a Glock nineteen that's untraceable with no background check. And in most or in a lot of states, you don't need a permit for them. So, and they are increasingly being used uh, around the country. So, uh, you know, again, it's not going to. Uh, I, I wonder if they're really as easy to assemble. As, Not for uh, you and me. Yeah, I actually I mean, watched. As somebody I actually watched who struggles video. every uh, you know holiday season to try to <laughs> assemble some toy for my kid, um, I'm, I'm a little dubious. I'll be able to do a ghost gun. Yeah, I watched like a YouTube video of someone assembling it, and uh, I do not pose a danger to anybody, myself or anybody else, when it comes to ghost guns. Let Once me tell you again, that much. a gun control measure that will have little impact is what we are saying <laughs> here. Um, anyway, uh, let's see. Other news we want to uh, uh, just take reference to this uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, announcement that the FDA is suspending, even for a short period of time, the distribution of the J&J vaccine because of like what, a handful of six uh, women got blood clots. I mean, the odds are like one in a million, you're going to get a blood clot. You know, seems pretty, uh, pretty remote. But on the other hand, to have any kind of disruption in the vaccine distribution at this point and have headlines about that uh, at a time when we are struggling to get as many people vaccinated as possible, doesn't seem to me to be a very uh, good sign. Yeah, a, a real debate has broken out now as to whether the uh, government should have actually paused uh, the uh, the 
distribution of the vaccine. Basically, what they've done is they've you know, recommended to the states to pause their distribution. And most states uh, are going to take that recommendation, if not all of them. And, you know, one side uh, argues that it's a big mistake uh, to to pause it, that in fact, more people are likely to, to die in the period of time that it's uh, paused and beyond because it's going to encourage more vaccine hesitancy, and not just for Johnson and Johnson, uh, but for all of the vaccines. People are going to say, "See, I told you so. You can't trust these these vaccines," um, and that's that's a real problem. On the other side of it, of course, the health professionals say, "Well, you just have to be sure uh, that uh, that these vaccines uh, are, you know, as safe as they can possibly be," while recognizing that. Uh, you know, this does happen with vaccines sometimes. Um, and, and you know, the numbers are are really, really small. Uh, my guess is they're going to unpause it relatively soon. We still don't even know whether there's a causal relationship uh, between the vaccine and these, uh, and these um, blood clots. So w- without actually being able to look at the data that the FDA had, my guess is that they were damned if they did damned if they didn't, that inevitably the news of the blood clots was going to come out. If the FDA didn't pause, they were going to get accused of covering it up. Vaccine hesitancy and concern and kind of conspiracy theories would have proliferated. On the other hand, by kind of being forthright about it, clearly pausing, saying what the data did and kind of establishing some sort of process for dealing with it, they possibly nipped some of those worst things in the bud, but I, I, you know, they probably just could, no matter what they did, it was probably. You're right, Victoria. I mean, trans transparency, uh, obviously is important. Mike, what um, would you, what would you have done if you had known that the FDA was hiding evidence that, you know, <laughs> yeah. or uh, that, that, I would have uh, reported it and we could have had a whole podcast. Uh, of uh, yeah. about <laughs> FDA concealing data. Yeah. About, so they, uh, ha- they had to get ahead of you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about this was I was watching, the White House briefing, uh, and they they brought Tony Fauci and Jeff Zients, who is the White House uh, COVID czar, out to talk about this situation. And uh, what was striking to me was that the CDC and the FDA made this decision yesterday. Last night, they notified the White House uh, that they were uh, going to be announcing something. According to Zients, he said this at the, at the press at the at the White House presser. But they didn't tell him the substance of what they were deciding. They just said, we've made a decision uh, and you need to be prepared for this tomorrow. And the White House you know, had no choice. They said, OK. But you know, the point is that you know, science, uh, I guess, led this and the White House did not try to control it. They did not try to influence the CDC or the FDA in, in any way, at least according to science's uh, telling. Uh, and I do wonder whether how this would have played out in the, in the Trump administration. <laughs> Right. Well, fair point. But the last thing I want to say is just remind people that um, here we are, uh, you know, several months into these this extraordinary vaccination uh, effort and millions, what, three million people getting vaccinated every day. But the numbers of coronavirus cases are still pretty high, as high as they were last fall when people started freaking out that we were uh, about to get another surge. More than 10,000 new cases in Michigan, more than 9,000 new cases in Florida. So we
we've got a long way to go to get out of this. And uh, this kind of news on the J&J vaccine is is not going to help. Yeah. Well, also on the depressing front, um, if the reliving um, the George Floyd killing in in the Chauvin trial, uh, you know, day after day after day was not tough enough for that city and for the country. We then had this terrible tragedy that occurred um, earlier this week uh, when Dante Wright, uh, that 20-year-old black man, unarmed, um, was stopped by the police and killed by a veteran cop who said that she um, thought that she was using her taser on him, and it turned out to be her service uh, pistol. And um, you know, one one more one more dead black man. You know, you have to ask. Uh, whether people can take this anymore, and, still... and it was coupled with a, with the video of a of an incident that fortunately didn't end with anyone getting seriously hurt, but a video that came out from Virginia of an army lieutenant pulled over by Virginia police, pepper sprayed, threatened for apparently no no clear reason. So we're we're once again entering expired this tags. Expired was the, tags. I yeah. think the explanation for that one. We're once yeah. again entering the the summer of anxiety as these uh, these stories proliferate and as we all await for the conclusion of the, the Chauvin trial and the jury verdict. All right. Well, um, we have a, um, a great guest uh, to talk about some of these subjects, uh, starting with guns, Senator Chris Murphy, Democratic Connecticut. So let's get to it. We now have with us the senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out by asking about uh, a a subject you were very passionate about, guns, after the uh, shootings in Atlanta and uh, and Boulder, we've had a spate of um, continued uh, mass shootings in this country. You said a few weeks ago that you were hopeful that you could get 60 votes to break a filibuster and pass gun control legislation in this Congress. How's that looking right now to you? I'm still hopeful. Um, listen, things are different. The anti-gun violence movement is still ascendant in this country. It's a political force in a way that it wasn't uh, 10 years ago. And the gun lobby is in disarray. The NRA, as we speak, is on trial um, and essentially greatly decreased in political strength. Uh, I just stepped off the Senate floor um, just moments ago and uh, I was talking to Republicans um, in real time about sort of what the parameters of a compromise would look like expanding background checks uh, to those that aren't covered today. Um, That's a conversation I wouldn't have been able to have just three or four years ago. I think there's a lot of Republicans that don't want to fight this issue uh, any longer who realize that um, going up against 90 percent of their constituents, an increasing percentage who are single issue voters, um, is not good for their long term political prospects. Uh, And Chuck Schumer is now committed to bringing Um, a background checks expansion bill before the Senate sometime this spring or this summer. So my goal is to get 60 plus votes uh, and I'm working every day to try to achieve that result. All right. So so you need 10 Republicans to go along. Who are the 10 that you think you could get? How many and how many do you have right now? Let me list them for you right now. No. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy to get 10, right? We 
Um, you know, our high water mark, uh, you know, was probably five or six, uh, but I think they're there. Uh, now, I, probably not shocking that the bill that passed the House, which is a true universal background checks bill, um, can't get 10 votes in the Senate. Um, but there is some universe of commercial sales and private sales, sales that happen on the internet and sales that happen at gun shows, uh, that I do think 10 Republicans will vote uh, to apply background checks to. Um, and at some point, we'll have to just call their bluff. Um, there's a reason Mitch McConnell didn't bring this up for a vote in the last five years, because he didn't want to have to put his members on record. At some point, we'll have to bring this up for a vote, but I'm going to work uh, hard to try to you know, actually have something that's ready to go with 10 plus Republicans to bring before the Senate in the next month or so. But you'll have to uh, limit in terms of personal sales. You're not going to get 10 Republican senators uh, to support the House bill that goes pretty far in terms of personal sales, right? You're going to have to make some compromise there. So the Manchin-Toomey bill, uh, which is the bill that failed in 2013, was uh, essentially applying background checks to internet sales and gun show sales that were advertised, what we would refer to as commercial sales. Um, HR8 is a universal background checks proposal, meaning it applies to every gun transfer. It means that a father who wants to sell his firearm to his son, there'd have to be a background check. Right. And there's, there's, there's exception. There can be exceptions for gifts, for loans. But if you're transferring a weapon, um, the House bill says you got to go through a background check. And what we all know is that that check normally takes about two or three minutes. It's not a hassle. Uh, it's not a prohibition to, uh, to, to, to these transfers in any way, shape or form, as long as the person on the receiving end um, isn't uh, prohibited from buying a gun. Uh, yes, in order to get 10 Republican votes, you know, we would have to be willing to negotiate um, on this issue of private sales, these sales that are not widely advertised sales that are perhaps happening between friends or family members. Uh, that is something we certainly would have to put on the table in order to get Republican votes. What about an assault weapons ban? I I, I think it'd be very surprising to find 10 Republican votes for an assault weapons ban right now. That's not to say that we shouldn't put Republicans on the record uh, on an assault weapons ban vote because it is still wildly popular. Uh, the last polling I saw suggests that the majority of Republican voters um, support a ban on assault weapons and two thirds of all voters want these military style weapons uh, to be taken out of uh, commercial sales. But I don't think you're going to get um, 60 votes for that proposal in the Senate. Uh, Senator, you said you just stepped off the floor. You were talking to some of your Republican colleagues um, about um, uh, gun legislation. Give us a flavor of those those conversations. What's your approach uh, to them and, and what kind of responses have you been getting? And what is it about those responses that give you hope that you could actually get 10 uh, Republicans uh, to back uh, gun safety legislation. G give us an example or two. You don't have to name names, but tell us what you're hearing. Well, I'll and, tell you what and, I and do name names. Actually, yeah. I do want you to name names. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I used to hear. I mean, I used to hear a lot of Republicans who in their gut knew what the right thing was, but wouldn't do it because they were afraid of the gun lobby. In particular, they were afraid of the NRA. And um, I, I don't, get that same sense from Republicans today. I, you know, when you talk to Republicans, very few of them sort of bring up the NRA as a sort of organization that influences their vote in the way that they would have a few years ago. And so it is indicative of the fact that political power 
has shifted. The anti-gun violence movement now has more volunteers, has more money, has more political capital. And while I'm not sure that Republicans in sort of safe red states are afraid of the anti-gun violence movement, um, they are also they they are not afraid uh, of the gun lobby in the way that they were uh, five years ago or eight years ago. And and thus they are more willing to do what they believe is the right thing. And most of them know the right thing is to, at the very least, make sure that every commercial sale in this country uh, has a background check applied to it. The the mass shootings that have occurred in the last few weeks or last few months have been getting an, an extraordinary amount of attention, but maybe getting less attention is the fact that 2020 was the worst year for gun violence in American history in the, in the last 20 years. Um, it was There was a significant rise in the amount of what you might call day-in, day-out gun violence. Not only that, but there was a significant uptick in gun purchases that came along with the uh, George Floyd protests of last year. I'm wondering what you think the background check legislation would do to address that problem versus the problem of mass shootings. Um, so... Uh, what we what we guess is that you know somewhere around 20 or 30 percent of all gun sales happen in this country without a background check and so I think you can fairly estimate that if you had a 40 percent rise in gun purchases um, reported gun purchases in 2020 these are these are guns we know were purchased because there was a background check you probably also had a similar increase in the number of guns that were sold without a background check. So you probably had a massive increase in guns that were trafficked deliberately around the criminal background check system to people who shouldn't have guns because of their criminal history, their mental health history. And that would explain in part why you saw this incredible increase in gun homicides in 2020, because it wasn't just that law-abiding citizens were buying guns. It, it was that people who were prohibited from buying guns were also coming into possession at a greater rate and using those weapons in the commission of, of crimes. So, you know, what we what we know is that the data tells us clearly in states that have universal background checks, you see, you know, somewhere between a 15 to 20 percent reduction in the number of gun crimes that are committed. Uh, and so, you know, our belief is that we can get these numbers under control, these sky high numbers in 2020, um, if we can make sure that we close this this loophole that allows so many weapons to be transferred to pretty dangerous people outside the criminal background check system. Uh, Senator, switching gears a bit, about a month or so ago, you went down to the border and you said you were moved to tears seeing the way the children who have been um, uh, crossing the border at record numbers were being treated uh, away from their parents or guardians in very packed facilities. The Biden administration uh, played this down at first, saying that this was a a standard seasonal influx. Uh, In fact, the latest numbers show nearly 19,000 kids uh, uh, unaccompanied uh, were picked up at the border in March the highest ever. In your view, and I know you chair the Appropriations Subcommittee on Homeland Security, um, is the Biden White House taking this problem seriously enough? And what can be done in the near term to curb the influx of particularly kids coming into the country unaccompanied? Well, there's no question in my mind that the administration is taking it seriously. But let's be clear about what has changed. 
the Biden administration is still turning around and sending back into Mexico any adult who crosses illegally and any family that crosses illegally. The only change is that, um, as was the case before COVID, unaccompanied minors who cross the border are given a chance to stay in the United States and apply for asylum. Remember, during COVID, there was this special situation in which no one was allowed to even apply for asylum. Everyone was turned immediately back around. The problem with that policy is that if you were turning around a 13-year-old and just dumping them on the Mexican border, especially if their trip began in Guatemala, you were leaving them for dead. I mean, they don't have any family there. They are going to immediately be co-opted by the cartels and the traffickers. Um, and, you know, I shudder to think what happened in 2020 to all of these 12-year-olds, these nine-year-olds that Border Patrol picked up and dumped on the other side of the Mexican border. Joe Biden decided that that was un-American. He said, no, we have a duty to protect these kids. If they've shown up here by themselves, we have to take care of them. We have to give them a chance to apply for asylum. If they don't meet that bar, we'll turn them back around and deliver them to their home country. But we're not going to dump them back in Mexico. So that's the difference. And, and I think he is taking it seriously. It's just that you had all of 2020 with none of these kids able to come into the United States. So once we opened up the ability for them to come, you know, you, I, I think, understandably did see a backlog of demand show up at the U.S. border. So I guess there's two questions here. One is, what are the facilities available for uh, taking care of these kids? What are the, we've all seen the images, not as many as the press would like, because we haven't been allowed in of uh, these kids stacked up, sleeping on the ground in, in overcrowded facilities. And the other is, what steps in the short term can be taken to try to curb the influx? Because, you know, long term aid to Central America, sure, but that's not going to turn things around in the near term in the next few months? Well, you were starting to see a reduction in the number of migrants coming to the United States from the Northern Triangle at the end of the Obama term and the beginning of the Trump term, because you actually can get some relatively significant short-term gain for investments in these countries and these communities. These, these aren't enormous countries. And so if you decide to spend serious money to increase security and economic opportunity in places like Guatemala and Honduras, um, you can actually, within you know 12 to 24 months, actually see a reduction in migration. Trump shut down all those programs, and unsurprisingly, by 2019, you start to see these numbers spike. So I do think that it is both a short-term and long-term strategy to start investing in these countries again, because so long as the security situation, the unemployment situation in those countries is as cataclysmic as it is today, there is no wall, there is no asylum process that is going to stop families from sending their kids to the United States. But yes, in the short run, you've got to very quickly scale up um, more facilities for these kids. Um, we've got to hire more uh, asylum officers, more immigration judges, so we can process these claims more quickly. And, and then we have to change the law. You know, at some point, we have to start letting in more people through a legal immigration pathway. We have to dramatically expand the number of refugees that we take from these countries so that, you know, more families feel like they've got a shot to get their kid into the country through a refugee program rather than just sending them to the border and hoping for the best. 
Senator, you, you also sit on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and uh, the news just broke uh, that the Biden administration is going to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. That's 20 years uh, uh, after the September 11th attacks. Um, what's your reaction to that? And, and, and I just I'd like to know, how, how do you assess our 20 year involvement uh, in Afghanistan? You know, more than 2000. American lives lost, trillions of dollars spent, uh, 100,000 or so dead uh, Afghan civilians. Um, how do you think history is going to look back on, uh, on, on, on that project? Well, I don't think history will look very kindly at all at the U.S. participation in a 20-year-long war, um, much of it our making. You know, our mission at the outset was uh, to take out a government that had provided shelter to al-Qaeda, um, the group that attacked the United States and killed thousands uh, of our citizens. Uh, honestly, that job was done uh, within uh, a couple of years. And we felt, understandably, that we had an obligation to stay in order to give the Afghan government a chance to establish itself such that the Taliban wouldn't rush back into power. But for the last 15 years, we have stayed and stayed and stayed under the belief that our military presence there would help the Afghan government and the Afghan military become strong enough to be able to govern the country and to protect its citizens from Taliban uh, advances. Um, none of that has come to fruition. In fact, the longer we stay, the stronger the Taliban gets. The longer we stay, the more corrupt the Afghan government gets. There is no argument that if the United States stayed another 10 to 15 years, um, it would lead to greater political stability. In fact, it seems that the longer we stay, the less stable the country uh, is. Uh, and so I um, counseled the, the Biden administration to uh, put this option on the table. I'm glad that the president has decided to withdraw our forces. To be honest, um, al-Qaeda uh, in Afghanistan is not uh, a threat to the United States uh, in the way that it used to be. The threats that exist to the United States in the counterterrorism space are in other places, and we deserve to be able to shift our resources to the places where the real uh, threats to our homeland actually present. But you know, on, on the very same day that this uh, news uh, broke, uh, the United States intelligence community issued a pretty pessimistic report about the prospects for, for peace and stability in Afghanistan. Uh, the report said that the Afghan government will struggle to hold the Taliban at bay if the coalition withdraws support. So what do we owe the Afghan government after 20 years? Uh, what, what, what do you think the nature of the commitment ought to be, ought to be going forward? Well, I, I, I want the United States to continue to be a diplomatic and economic partner with uh, the Afghan government. But you know we have been in Afghanistan trying to help the Afghan government uh, stand up governance capacity uh, for two decades. Um, some of our soldiers that are fighting for us in Afghanistan weren't alive when this war began. And I, I just hate to say it, but the Afghan government hasn't lived up to their end of the bargain. Uh, that government is still rife with corruption. The military has been promising to um, to get better and increase capabilities, and they have not. Uh, and so at some point, the United States has to take no for an answer. 
Uh, and the Afghan government has had ample opportunity to be able to create the governance and security space uh, such as to rob the Taliban of its operating oxygen. Um, it has not done that, despite billions of dollars in U.S. assistance, uh, despite hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops being inside uh, that country. My belief is that if we were to stay for another 15 years, at the end of that 15 period of time, the Taliban would still be in Afghanistan and would still be likely to do very well uh, after a U.S. Uh, withdrawal. Uh, let me ask you about a, a neighboring country, Iran. You have been uh, quite outspoken about the need for the United States to get back into the Iranian nuclear agreement. But, um, you know, things got complicated over the weekend when the um, explosion at the Natanz nuclear plant took place. The Iranians immediately blamed the Israelis. Do you believe that the Israelis were behind this? And what does that do to the prospects of restoring the nuclear agreement? So uh, I have not gotten a briefing on the incident. I've requested one. And so I'm not going to um, conjecture about who is responsible. I will say this, though. Um, the events of this weekend, in my mind, are an advertisement for uh, diplomacy and a return to the JCPOA as quickly as possible. Uh, Iran's announcement that they are going to increase enrichment in the wake of this uh, attack is more evidence that there is absolutely no military pathway to divorce Iran from a nuclear research program that allows them to quickly spin out a nuclear weapon. Um, the only pathway here is through diplomacy, and that involves likely America going first, America deciding to, to suspend some of the sanctions that were implemented during the Trump administration, and in return, expecting that the Iranians will get back into compliance. Um, compliance for compliance, um, which is supported by the majority of Democrats uh, in the United States Senate, as evidenced by a letter that Senator Kane and I sent to the administration today, um, is still the best pass forward here. And I think the events of the weekend um, confirm that. Should we lift the sanctions before the Iranians commit to uh, staying in compliance or getting back into compliance? Well, I, I, listen, ideally, you would like to be able to coordinate this so that we're lifting sanctions at the same time that the Iranians are entering into the agreement. Um, but I have said from the beginning, I'm not afraid of acting first because it was the United States that withdrew from the agreement first. And so in my mind, it, it, there probably comes with that a responsibility for the United States to be the first to reenter. And then you know, think of it this way, if the United States withdraws a portion of its sanctions and there is no reciprocity from the Iranians, um, then that um, makes it much easier for us to convince our allies uh, to join us in sanctions, right? If we withdraw our sanctions, Iran does not reciprocate, then it is much easier for us to rejoin with Europe, uh, Russia, uh, and China in a multilateral approach to, uh, to Iran. In our last few minutes, I want to bring us back to the gun issue, if that's okay. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, when do you think the Senate and uh, when do you think voters can anticipate that the Senate is going to take up the, the background check bill? And and as a kind of a, an, an ancillary question, if it fails to get 10 Republican supporters, does it become Exhibit A for getting rid of the filibuster? Well, I, I my guess is that we will take up um, a gun violence bill in the next two to three months. So I think Senator Schumer has 
he sent me on a mission to try to see if there's a pathway to 60 votes. And I'm working on that today. I, I don't know that I'm I'm optimistic, um, but I, I see the path. I, I think there is a path to get 60 votes. If we cannot get 60 votes, we are still going to have a vote in the Senate. Uh, we are going to have a vote on expanding background checks in this country because we need to show the voters of this country where their senators stand. And it might be part of what convinces members of the Senate Democratic majority to change the rules. Some of my Senate Democratic colleagues say that the filibuster is an incentive to cooperation. Well, I've made it very clear on this issue of background checks, I'm willing um, to compromise. I am not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But if Republicans aren't willing to compromise uh, on this issue of guns that has 90% public support for universal background checks, um, then I think it may become an example of how the Senate rules, in fact, incentivize dysfunction rather than cooperation, because I am offering myself out there for compromise. Um, And if Republicans don't take that offer, it is probably evidence that the rules as they exist today in the Senate serve mostly to empower the minority rather than to empower compromise. Is that a yes to doing away with the filibuster if you don't get a compromise? Well, I, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm on record. I mean, I, yeah. I would probably start with filibuster reform, but I can certainly be convinced to, you know, eventually, you know, get rid of the filibuster. I well, hasn't probably, Manchin taken it off the table for all practical purposes at this point? Well, I, I, you have some of my colleagues are, are convinced that the filibuster promotes bipartisan cooperation and, and let's Let's test that theory uh, on, a, on a multitude of issues from democracy reform to immigration to gun reform over the next couple months. And then let's come back to those same colleagues and see if they believe the same thing. Senator Murphy, we'll, we'll, we're going to let you go. But you um, referred to this uh, as uh, being on a mission. And in a sense, it's been a very personal mission for you. In fact, you wrote a book uh, not too long ago. Uh, Victoria's Help. Called The Violence Inside Us, I was going to say, uh, with our very own Victoria having helped you with it. And I, the book is about your sort of your personal awakening uh, to the problem of, of gun violence, um, uh, particularly in the wake of Sandy Hook. So tell us a little bit about that, uh, that personal uh, awakening um, and, uh, and why this has become such a important cause for you um, personally. Yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed by the fact that I didn't, you know, work on this issue when I was in the House of Representatives before Sandy Hook, um, because, you know, I grew up just a stone's throw from some of the most violence ridden neighborhoods in Connecticut in the south end and north end of Hartford. Um, And unfortunately for me, it took this mass shooting in Sandy Hook to sort of recognize that, you know, right in my backyard, there were families that were going through traumas. Uh, every single weekend. Um, So I am absolutely trying to make up for lost time. Um, And there is this growing macabre club in the United States Congress of uh, members who have now had mass shootings happen in their district or their state or even their neighborhood. Uh, And of course, the issue now is hard to not be personal for so many Americans because you now have every 
you know, elementary school students, uh, mine included, coming home from school, describing the active shooter drill that they took part in. And so I think the reason that this issue has moved so quickly in one direction, why the anti-gun violence movement has become so much more powerful overnight, virtually overnight, is because there are so many people like me who have been personally transformed um, because of either their exposure to gun violence in their personal life or the, the, the recognition that their child is now having to face the potential of gun violence at their school. So yeah, I have this little focus group in Connecticut. I've got this handful of parents in the north end of Hartford in Newtown. Um, and whether or not I deliver for them, you know, is maybe more important than, you know, anything else in my political life today. And I feel like I'm closer than ever before to getting something really important done. And I will tell you, they tell me, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Chris, get something done here. Um, and so I listen to them when it comes to sort of how far I'll be willing to compromise with Republicans. You mentioned, you know, uh, our kids. Um, and um, I had a conversation with my uh, my daughter just before this podcast, telling her that we were going to be interviewing you about guns. And she's a senior in high school. Uh, and um, I was a little surprised to hear her say that she's against gun control. And a lot of her friends are against gun, gun control. But from the left, uh, because they talk about how it, it won't be helpful to uh, people of color, to people who are marginalized, to people who deal with uh, have to deal with uh, violence and gangs um, in their neighborhoods. Uh, and then that's a pretty prevalent attitude among uh, young people that she goes to school with in New York City. Um, is that something that, that you've encountered uh, on this issue? Is is because you talked about the politics shifting. Could it be also shifting at all in that way as well? Or is that not a something that you hear much about? Uh, you know, I, I, I will be happy to make the drive and sit down and talk to your daughter and her friends. I don't hear that very often. Yeah. I, I Let's you, set that up. We'll yeah, set that up. I, I, I don't think you can get to nine. Right, most of these polls tell you 90 percent of Americans yeah. support um, universal background checks. I don't think you can get to that number without, you know, fair unanimity amongst the progressive community on this question. But I will say, you know, the book that Victoria helped me write, you know, ended up telling two stories, um, three stories, really. I mean, the story of American violence um, and, and why we've become a global outlier is uh, a story of prevalence of firearms. There's just no doubt that the more firearms there are in a community, the higher the rates of gun violence are but also a story of American poverty and American racism. Guns have, violence has been used by dominating groups to keep out groups sort of oppressed uh, and subjugated for centuries. And it is much more prevalent in communities with high rates of poverty. So um, what, I, what I write about in the book is that, well, I believe in banning assault weapons and universal background checks, that will only deliver you about halfway there. Because if you don't deal with America's system of, uh, of built-in racism and racial oppression and you don't lift people up out of poverty, um, violence is still going to be a very big part of a lot of people's lives. Okay, last one. Uh, back on the foreign policy front, you have written a letter to something called the Public Interest Declassification Board, recommending that, uh, urging them to recommend declassification of the CIA's analysis of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Now, the DNI uh, recently released this 
pretty skimpy report that didn't tell us very much uh, about what was behind the CIA's analysis. It, it, and they also, the Biden White House also did not sanction MBS. They did not impose a travel ban on uh, MBS. And what you hear from a lot of folks who are hoping for more that it is, this is essentially business as usual. Tell us why you wrote that letter and what your reaction is to the way the Biden administration has responded to the murder of Khashoggi. I I don't think that Biden's policy towards Saudi Arabia is business as usual. Um, it is out of the ordinary for the United States to impose sanctions on the leaders of foreign nations. Um, well, as many MBS is not the leader. He well, is he, not is the the king. he is not the he, king. He is not in name, but he is the de facto leader of that nation for all practical purposes. Pulling out of the Yemen civil war, pulling our military support for that partnership, I would argue has much more practical impact on Mohammed bin Salman um, than his visa to the United States. I, I don't know that he has a lot of invitations to come to the United States right now. He used to. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but he certainly has uh, designs to continue uh, a military campaign inside Yemen. So our withdrawal from that partnership, I think, is a very clear signal that we are not going to continue business as usual. But as you mentioned, I have a broader concern, and my concern applies to Democratic and Republican administrations, the use of classification uh, to essentially cover up political secrets, things that would just be embarrassing for the administration to have publicly known or at best inconvenient um, information that doesn't compromise any sources and methods. The Trump administration was really bad at this, but the Obama administration also occasionally kept stuff classified just because they didn't want to have to answer questions about it. And that's not how classification is supposed to work. So uh, I am going to keep at this because my worry is that um, the American public will be robbed of you know, critical information to make judgments about questions of war and peace if more and more and more information becomes classified. I think that's a cause that uh, everybody on this podcast can agree with. And I want to thank you for joining us. And when you round up those 10 Republican senators to vote for gun control, we'd like to have you on with all 10 of them. You'll be the first that I will send the names to when I have them. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Senator. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Very good.